Welcome to Worst Hole, the podcast that majors on disasters. I'm Michael Barron, your host. This is dedicated to golfers who have had a bad hole. Really bad. Double figures bad. However, you are not alone. We asked the pros what was their worst hole. And does throwing, breaking clubs and swearing ever help? This week's high school confession comes from James Cooper, one of the top coaches in New Zealand, helping the likes of Lydia Ko and Danny Lee onto the world stage. But James's proudest moment was nothing to do with golf. It was a karaoke competition. Can you take us through your worst hole as an amateur? It's a fact. Uh, I was trying to remember it because I, I tried to forget it and put it in the past, but it was at Lockheel Golf Club and I was in a tournament, which was the qualifying round for the New Zealand um, amateur. My dad was caddying for me and I got on this hole and um, I was well within the cut line. And it's a par five, the last hole at Lockheel. And he says, son, you're well within the cut line. I think it's a good idea for us to just hit possibly a four iron, then another four iron and then a wedge, and then we can make the cut line quite easy. So, no, no, Dad, give me a driver. I set it with my driver. You know Lockheel, the last hole there, out of bounds is on the left. Obviously, I hooked it out of bounds, walked up there, it's about about a metre out of bounds. As I'm walking back, my dad said, son, here, take the four iron and go and hit it back into place. No, no, Dad, I can hit a driver. I know I can hit up the middle. He's all right, son. So he gave me the driver again. And his, his history said it, or, is what happened within history. I hit it out of bounds again. Walked up there again. It was in pretty much near the same place as the first one. He says, son, I think it's time for you to four iron. I said, yes, dad. So I hit a four iron. Well, anyway, I got it onto the green. The first putt, I thought to myself, well, I can still make this putt. He says, son, it's probably a good idea. Just to run it up, make what you need to make, and then we can walk off this hole. Now, I gave it a go. End up three putting it, and I made 10 and I'll never forget sitting around the back of the clubhouse and my dad walked around the back and said, son, what's wrong? I said, well, I'm, I, missed, I missed the cut there. He says, whose fault was that? He says, it was mine. He says, so, son, you need to learn from this. You made the wrong choice, but hopefully going forward, you'll be able to make the right choice. Well, as history proved it, I played in another tournament there and um, I was coming down the stretch and it was against Steve, Al- Steve Alka. And it was for the, um, back then it was, I think what they call the Waikato stroke play. And um, I can always remember my dad, I hit a four iron off that hole, hit another four iron out there, hit a wedge and made the putt for birdie and shot 69 to beat Steve Alka by a shot. From that, I learned that um, the wise words of my dad have played in my mind over and over and over again when I've played in different events. And I've been able to pass that story on to Numerous other amateurs and golfers are like, isn't it amazing as you start getting to a certain age now that I'm getting close to the 60? <laughs> but uh, I find myself quoting what my father has, has taught me all the way through life and um, lots of simple things. I can always remember him before I go uh, out to play golf. He, he, he made me look at myself and he goes, son, what's not quite right about that look? And I look at myself from the, from the feet up and it might be my shoes might be a little bit dirty. And I said, well, my shoes are dirty. Don't clean your shoes, son. And just little things that you know, your parents teach you that you pass on to your kids, but also on to other kids that I've been lucky enough to, to coach. What advice do you give to your students about having a, a bad hole when it's all unravelling quickly? Because you must have caddied for a few of these sort of top players over the years and almost swapped roles uh, that you and your dad had. 
Well, you know, look, one of the things I've learned is every player needs to have a process of how they're going to work out a hole. I've learned that by teaching my players the process of working out the strategy of the hole and then hit the right club with that strategy and then also be able to correct it positively or negatively, sorry, and give yourself a, a pat on the back if it goes well. You learn a lot of things from mistakes and, and sometimes I will even let some of my younger students make mistakes because they need to know how to make the right calls later on in life because no one comes out and makes the perfect decisions all the time and and as you know through life you learn a lot of the, the things that you need to go forward through making mistakes going back to the courses that you've played around around the country is there a, a course and a hole that has had your number over the years when you sort of step up on that tee you go oh god not this hole not this hole again the 18th of Paraparam Golf Club. The amount of times I've either hit it out of bounds on the right or into the thick rough on the left with a good score coming up, it just didn't set up right for me because growing up, I was the drawer of the golf ball. I, I had to really, really reach down deep to aim it at the right-hand fence or the, or the out of bounds line to try and draw it back into the fairway. And predominantly, the wind would be coming off the left. So... Um, <laughs> So there's a whole, what I, what I call a cluster, a cluster of things happening there. And I just couldn't quite get my head around it. And the amount, the amount of times that I've hit it, either out of bounds or into the thick rough on the left and made double it there, I've, I've lost count. But every time I get to that hole, I take a deep breath. I go, this is the moment when I'm going to play this hole properly. <laughs> and I still do that to this day. Oh, that's great. Going back to um, the beginning, James, you, you started your working life at the freezing works, is that correct? That is correct. Um, and what sort of education did that give you? Well, funny you say that. I, I actually learned a lot about people, life, and hard work working at the freezing works. As my dad used to say to me back then, he says, son, you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but you're jam-packed with common sense, and you're about to learn how much that means so working at the freezing works. I was lucky that there were a lot of guys that played golf at the freezing works and they took me under their wing. I was 16 years old. I'll never forget going along to the freezing works on my first day and they put me on the broom. And back in those days as a 16-year-old getting paid $350 for sweeping all this ugly stuff off the ground was like, wow. But through that, I learned how to deal with people, all sorts of different people. Um, dare I say it, I had a few of my cousins that, belong to certain parts of different environments, if, if you want to say that. And it was really funny working with both sides, whether they be black or red, that at the end of the day, when they're working on the chain with you and you're having to get the job done, it's amazing how we band together to make it work. And then at the end of the day, I couldn't quite work this out, how they would go and do their things in the evening and think, why are they doing that? That's just not common sense. But in a work environment, they were able to, to band together. The freezing works taught me a lot. It taught me that every day you get up and do your thing and work. And at the end of the day, you go home, you rest up, and then go back again. One of my worst experiences was working on what would they call the, um, the legging table. And it's a place where you take the trotters off the hind quarters. And my dad was the feeder, and he's the one that feeds the lambs as they come off the legging table onto the main chain. And with my dad being the feeder, I would, I, I would have thought that he'd given me a little bit of leeway. As I'm getting there... I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to get it done. He turned the chain off and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Dad, son, you need to pull your... <laughs> and then I knew straight away, work is work. 
he's in a position where he needs to get his job done, so I better start doing mine properly. And uh, you learn so many different life skills through the freezing works. Yeah. When you were having those bad holes, uh, James, were you a, a thrower or a snapper of clubs in the early days? I was. Can't you tell by this red here? <laughs> I'll never forget one year broke probably seven golf clubs. I, ha I had a habit of hitting the shot and then flipping it over and then whacking it on my foot and I would break it in the grip end. And I remember playing in the Hooks Bay Amateur against Stuart James and there were a lot of people following me and it was the final, uh, the semi-final of the Hooks Bay Amateur and I was 16 years old. And on the second hole at Waikiki Golf Club, I've hit this shot and it's hit a bat and ended up staying in bounds. Back in the day, I started off playing left-handed and I swapped over to right-handed because my family couldn't afford left-handed golf clubs. So I switched it over, unbeknown to Stuart Jones, and I just whacked it on the green with a, with a sand iron up against the fence and knocked it onto the green. And I was angry with myself hitting it there and I flipped the club over and I whacked my toe. But as, as I went to whack the club, it missed, it hit my toe. And I sort of stumbled on the go, oh, and my dad said, there you go. How are you going to go now for the next 16 holes, you idiot? <laughs> I ended up beating Stuart Jones, but um, after we walked off, he said, son, if you ever break another golf club, I mean, you got a problem. And I never did it from then on in. It was a consequence of the action. Wow. When my father looked at me straight in the eyes, and went, son, next time you do that, there will be a consequence to your action. And I knew what that would be, and I never did it again. A lot of our kids th these days don't understand consequences to action, and I don't. I don't believe in hitting kids, but I do believe in letting them understand if there's a certain action, it has to be followed up with a consequence. And it's not always a bad one. It can also be a good one. But you must see those top players, and they both have, probably have quite different philosophies and realities. You know, the, the philosophy is to, okay, forget about it, walk up to the next tee and it all starts again. But then some people, just by slamming the club into the bag or expressing their anger in some ways just gets that emotion out and gives them a kind of a clean slate. Do you empathise with both views? As I've gotten, gotten older, I, I've learned how to coach both. And look, not, not everybody can deal with pressure all in the same ways. There are people that are just like a volcano. If it builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up, then it explodes. So I've learned to give them um, breathing techniques. Um, not everybody can go, oh, Oh damn! On the ground, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be there needs to be some people that sometimes I, I believe in my kids. As ah, long as it's nothing um, derogative coming out of their mouth, to let it out that way. There, there's nothing wrong with letting that emotion out because then they can then go on to the next shot and play it with a with a clear mind. What what drew you into the teaching side of the game? I started coaching because I could no longer play like I, I was a I was a good player but I wasn't a great player the reason why I feel I wasn't a great player was that I was brought up in a country where I always thought that kids or players overseas were better than me that's where I take my hat off to the likes of Greg Turner and Phil Tatarangi who were both around the same era as I they had the confidence to go over and do a scholarship or Philip to go over and do the PJ tour I always took my hat to people like that and that's why now I actually educate my kids that they are good enough. And through technology, it's actually made the gap a lot closer because we can look online and, and, and actually 
make a track for them, making them understand that what they do is actually as good as what any other player in the world does. So the reason why I got into coaching was to try and make the people, all golfers, as good as what they could be, understanding that they are as good as what they they think they are for other players in the world. And when I was lucky enough to be chosen as, as national coach for 10 years um, during my watch, I was lucky enough to have just a tiny little, little bit of help with the likes of Danny Lee, Lydia, lots of other players of that era that came through. There were probably three or four coaches, and that's where I took my hat off to a young woman, Gailene, Gailene Ear. She had the foresight to look at what she perceived at that particular time the coaches that could actually make New Zealand golf stronger or better. And she chose uh, the likes of Brian Doyle and Marnie Maguire, who was a, a person that went on uh, overseas and was one of our first lady golf professionals. Susan Farron, Kevin Smith, who now coaches some of the best players in our country, Harry Hillier, and, and, and myself. And we were put in this little room and Gailey said to us, I want you to look at each other because I've chosen you four because I feel as though you four can get on with each other and actually communicate with other coaches within our country to try and build our level of our players up. Through that, um, we all got our heads together and all had our own strengths strength and weaknesses. And we were able to work out a formula going forward to help players even today to become what they want to become. The reason why I got into coaching was, was to make all golfers, whether it be a golfer in the garden having a practice swing, like me or you, or, or a young golfer that I can see the potential in that could possibly be one of the best players in the world. And giving them the, the right avenues to go through because, you know, as we all know, as we get older, we learn the right way to go through, through going through the wrong way. Because of that, we're able to guide our young and our potentially good players in directions that could actually end up being like a Lydia Cone number one in the world or... Orion Fox, who who I truly believe has the capabilities of winning a major because that young man, he's a good Kiwi boy, hits it a long way, is someone that we can all relate to. There's a lot of young young players coming through the through through now. Josh Gary's another player that obviously I've had a little bit to do with. He's a young player that once he believes in what he does, he can go on and win tournaments too. I think Danny has the potential to still be a player of high class level he already is but I truly believe that Danny could win a major too so it's exciting for New Zealand golf to see other players that have come from this country and have gone on to the world tour because we need that we need that as as a golfing nation but also as a nation you've been based at Chamberlain Park for for many years and and a lot of um, listeners might not know too much about uh, Chamberlain Park one of the busiest public courses in the country. Were you ever tempted to base yourself at a private course or does your working class sort of DNA, uh, is that connected to the reason you've stayed at Chamberlain? Thanks for mentioning that. I've been there for 32 years at Chamberlain. I call it Royal Chamberlain Park. (laughs) Uh, um, I've been lucky enough during my time at Royal Chamberlain Park to have, have had other job offers from private golf clubs. When I looked at it, I'll never forget what my wife said to me. She said, baby, if you want to build a business in coaching, you need location, population. And when I thought about it, being based at the busiest golf course back when I first started in the Southern Hemisphere, right next to the busiest city in New Zealand, Auckland, right opposite the busiest motorway in our country, it was it was a no-brainer. And to my wife's delight, I stayed there. But then 
I always thought that I was at a not on a level playing field because I had no facilities. But then I learned that I had 18 holes. And I've since learned for someone to learn the game, they have to learn the game. And then as they get better, then they learn the technical prowess of swinging the golf club better or correctly. People that start off at a driver range generally don't have the luxury of going out like if you have your chipping problems, as you have shown me at different times. <laughs> I can go to a hole on a golf course where you might have a problem with that shot. I learned how to adapt and come up with different things. If someone was struggling to slice the golf ball or fade the golf ball, I go to the 16th hole at, at Chamberlain Park and get them to fade around the corner. And then as I start to become better as a golf coach, I learned that giving people situations it actually helps them to learn better in those situations. And through that, I've been able to coach and, and grateful enough to coach some of, some of the better players in our country at all levels. I'm grateful for that. So the answer to your question really is that I, I love coaching at Chamberlain Park. On any given day, I could have a Rolls-Royce Porsche parked up against my RAV4 or a Mini or a motorbike. It doesn't really matter how much money a person's got. Mm. To me, what, I, what matters to me is, do they enjoy my company? Do I enjoy yours? Let's get on with it and let's learn this beautiful game called golf. When you tee it up, it doesn't know who you are. Mm. It doesn't know how much money you've got. All it matters is, can you hit it down the fairway? I truly believe that to make the game more accessible and to make it more fun, the dress standards need to be relaxed a little. Our young need to have a, a good time out there and, and also also the rules like when we teach our kids there's nothing wrong with them running through the bunker or running on the green as, as long as they don't dig up the green or they go back and rate the bunker up for this game to keep on progressing we need to look at those me and Mrs. Mrs. Jones Mrs. Jones Jones, Jones. Tell us about the story of the karaoke competition that changed your life. I walked into this place, it used to be called the Great Western Steakhouse, and it was in Newland. And up there singing was this five foot two blonde with the greatest pair of legs I've ever seen on this planet. And I thought to myself, wow. Unbeknown to me, my father passed away. I needed to raise some money. It's called a, what we call um an unveiling. So I entered in a song competition and the judges of that song competition were Bunny Walters, Diamond Lil, my wife Joanne and, and another guy by the name of Guy Cater. I learned these two songs and they were me and Mrs. James and Kissing in the Back Row of the Movies. I went through and I won the song and the winning prize for that was $3,500. And through me winning that, I was able to pay for my dad's headstone. And to this day, it's the proudest moment of my life because it's, it, was, it was something that I had to do and I just did it. And through that, I was able to do something for my dad. But also, I met my wife. And she walked up to me and she says, uh, you sing okay? Do you know any more songs? I went, no. What happens if we had a, told you that you need to sing another song? I just sang the same one twice. She says, you're a cheeky fella. I said, yep. I says, look, you're a good singer. Is there any chance that I come back and, and you can teach me how to sing? She says, yep. So for the next six weeks, I went back there every Saturday, singing those same two songs. And she says, look, you need to learn how to sing another song. And through that, um, I've been happy with her now for 32 years. And, and you sing together, don't you? Yes, we do. Um, through that, um, she taught me how to sing. My, my wife was a very good singer. And she, she, she was a singer before I met her. 
and um, she used to sing with a lot of, of the artists of, of bygone years. She gave it all up and she became a teller at a bank. Because of her knowledge to remember the lyrics of songs, she so progressed her way up through the bank and ended up being the bank manager of the bank. There was another guy by the name of Brett Wallace. And as I said, he came second in Stars in Their Eyes as Neil Diamond. So together, my wife would sing the lights of Aretha Franklin, Mariah Carey, and all those type of singers. And I sing a lot of George Benson, Bruno Mars, Justin Timberlake, because of my vocal range. So together, we realized that we could sing so many different genres. And through that, we were thinking, well, what kind of name? And then through some strange re reason, we said, you know, we, we literally sing from the back to the front. So we all stopped and went back to the front. Well, we do sing back to the front. So then I came up with B, with a small two, and a small F, and it became back to front. So we sing from the back to the front. We sing from the 50s through the current. We have the ability to sing any genre in between. And, and through that, I approached another guy by the name of Joe Stanley, and I says, Jay, I need a manager. And he says, what for? Joe Stanley's a well-known ex-All Black who now runs a corporate hospitality business. I want to do some singing. He says, what do you mean? Can you sing? He says, you know what? You come and sing at my 50th birthday. If you're any good, you can start doing uh, the gigs for, for my company, which is the entertainment business. And we sang at an All Black function. And at that function, there were the likes of a, of a young John Hart, the Wetton guys, and, and, and Zinni, and, and all those boys that I got to know later on through golf. And then halfway through, Joe comes and he says, hey, Cass, you can sing. You're hired. <laughs> so, so from that, um, he, he got us in front of David Beckham uh, when David Beckham came over, and we were lucky enough to sing in front of 450 of the um, dignitaries that were there. And then we sang at the World Championships netball. Because of my golf environment, um, a lot of the corporates that I, I coach realized that I could sing too. So we are back to France and I'm very proud of our group. The beauty of music is it brings everyone together when it's done properly. It must be a nice compliment to, to, to golf, you know, like just doing something co completely different or are there or are there crossovers between the two? There are crossovers between the two. Like singing, you get you sing in different places. So you, you go to the venue, you look at the venue, you check it out, get ready and then perform. It's, it's like a game of golf. You go to the golf course, you check the golf course out, you check the venue out, the practice facilities and everything about the course, and then you play. But the one thing I really enjoy is that when I sing, sometimes I wear these glasses, obviously. I wear like a, a Humphrey Bogart hat with black shirt, black pinstripes, with these black shiny shoes. And there's been numerous times when I've sung and I can see people staring at me going, no, oh, no, it can't be. And then they get close and they go, and they, they, no, it can't be. And then I go, G'day, Michael, how are you, mate? Going good? How's your chipping? They says, how can a person have two gifts? I'm just grateful for that. Grateful to be able to play golf, teach golf, and sing. How important is, is Māori culture to you, James? I'll be honest, when I first started playing golf, my dad said to me, son, you need to learn how to be a Pākehā before you can learn how to be a Māori. And I didn't quite understand, but what, what he was trying to teach me back in those days, to be able to play golf in a sport that was dominated by Europeans, I had to learn how to play the game. Then, now, I've gone back and learnt my Māori culture. To my mum, she used to say to me, one day, sweetheart, you want to get both wings. And when you get both wings, then you learn how to fly. And what she really meant by that was that one wing is the Pākehā side of me, and the other wing is the Māori side, and together we make kiwis. And, and, a, and a kiwi bird can fly if you have two wings. And finally, James, what advice 
would you give to the amateur who's having a really, really bad hole? A bad hole is not as bad as a bad day. And what we're going through right now, COVID, I think we're all, all starting to realise that we need to work together, just like on a golf course. When you're having a bad day, just breathe. Think of a happy thing. Think of your wife. Think of your kids. Because at the end of the day, once that hole's finished or that shot's finished, you can hit another one. And then after that shot's finished, hit another one. And that's what the best golfers in the world say. You're only one shot away from hitting a good one. So that's my advice. One shot at a time. Thanks, James. That's great advice. And thanks to you for listening to Worst Hole. I'm Michael Barron, and we'll be back very soon with more high school confessions. Enjoy your golf, wherever it may take you.